Genesis 3, starting at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Part of the purpose of a worship service, including a sermon, is to prepare you to follow Christ in the week ahead. Of course, this is not just a time where we come and gather to offer up our praise to God for what he has done, but this can be and should be each week a time of preparation for us for what lies ahead of us in um, the week ahead or maybe even just the day ahead. There's an element of looking forward that should be happening during a Christian worship service because after all, the Apostle Paul said, we're not just thinking about what is behind, but we're striving towards what is ahead. And so as you think about the rest of your day today and as you think about the week ahead, you need to be prepared for temptation. You need to be prepared for what is upon the path that is ahead of you. You need to to open your eyes to what temptations, what traps might be laid for you there. There's an old saying in sports, and I think it's maybe uh, common to other arenas of life as well, that if if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And so that's also the case in our spiritual lives. That if you're failing to think about what is coming later today or in the week ahead, then you're planning to fall into temptation. If we're going to walk by faith, if we're going to live in a way that is pleasing to God, we absolutely rely on the Holy Spirit to equip us and enable us to trust and obey God. And so, first and foremost, this is something God does in us and through us by His power to resist temptation. But... God also calls us to use our minds to analyze what might happen in, um, especially with regards to this matter of temptation, to make plans for the week ahead, to be aware of the devil's playbook. And just as we start thinking about temptation in this topic this morning, we need to think about what is at stake when we fail to plan when we fail to recognize how the devil's schemes unfold. What is at stake here is that you can live with God, that you can live a life that is pleasing to God, that you can walk in purity before the Lord in the the power of the Spirit. You can live a life that is thriving, and Jesus said, abundant. And you can resist temptation. 
that seeks to ruin your life. So there's so much at stake here, and we need to use our minds to focus on this passage so that we would know what will lie ahead in 20 minutes and in two hours and each day of our lives. What, how will temptations come our way? How can we be ready for them? How can we spot them so that we would say no? The Apostle Paul says, say no to ungodliness and live for Christ. So today we're going to think deeply about the strategies of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He uses the very same strategies against us today that he used against Adam and Eve in the garden. And as we strive towards a life of holiness in Christ's power, let's pay close attention today because there's so much at stake. So first we see a description of the serpent. Before we get to the strategies of the serpent, we see first a description of the serpent's character. The serpent was crafty. The devil is a skilled adversary. We need to recognize that, don't we? The devil is a skilled spiritual adversary who hates the kingdom of God and who hates the people of God. He should neither be overestimated, because according to this passage in all of Scripture, the devil is a creature, and so God is certainly over him in power, and so the devil should not be overestimated, but neither should our spiritual adversary be underestimated either. He was exceptionally crafty. That's what we learn in this passage, and and that's what we find in other descriptions of the devil, of Satan, of the serpent throughout the Scriptures. This means that the devil will exploit your weaknesses. He knows how to do that. And, but brothers and sisters, you can resist him. If you are prone towards judgmentalism and you know that there is a real temptation towards having a judgmental spirit in your heart towards other people, you can know that there will be a temptation today and in the week ahead where you will see somebody doing something foolish where you will see somebody maybe sinning against God openly. And so being aware that the devil is crafty in, in pulling you towards judgmentalism in those scenarios, you hopefully could be prepared to respond with grace and truth. Or if your personal weakness is to get drunk instead of seeking comfort in the Lord, know that in the week ahead there will be temptations towards drunkenness towards alcohol use to medicate your anger or your sadness or your loneliness. There will be times in the week ahead where you will be tired and you'll be tempted to drink, where you'll be angry or where you will be lonely and, and there will be that temptation there. The devil is a crafty spiritual adversary. So we can begin our time in this passage by recognizing that the devil is very good at what he does. And what he's trying to do is tempt people away from a life with God. And Jesus said uh, in very stark terms what the devil's mission is in John 10, verse 10. He said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Of course, this is before Jesus says, but I've come that you might have life and have to the full. But, but we're focusing now on our spiritual adversary, that, that the devil comes And he's serious about trying to ruin your life, to steal and kill and destroy. 1 Peter 5, verse 8, be self-controlled and alert. He's saying, 
Be on your guard, brothers and sisters. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. So, brothers and sisters, I plead with you today today to take temptation and sin seriously. To be urgent in your desire to say no to temptation. We have a crafty spiritual enemy. He prowls around like a roaring lion to steal and kill and destroy. So firstly, we can recognize that in Genesis 3, and it's the teaching of the whole Bible. One of the major errors of the false teachers that you would often see on TV who are talking about uh, a health and wealth prosperity gospel is that they fail to impart to their churches and to their listeners a sense of urgency about the destructiveness of sin. That's one of the the great errors, I think, uh, that's, that's certainly creeping into American evangelical culture, is to preach sermons and think in a kind of way where we just gather together and we think about our hopes and dreams and how there's so much potential in all of you, and so go out there and get them without recognizing that the devil is against you. The devil seeks to steal and kill and destroy. Is prowling around like a roaring lion. And so be self-controlled, be on your guard, be alert. If a sermon doesn't mention sin and salvation through Christ alone, but instead focuses on your potential and your dreams, you will enter the week ahead naive about all of the traps that are set that seek to ruin your life. Instead of being naive, brothers and sisters, rely absolutely on God to overcome the devil. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. That's what the Apostle Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 6 in the famous armor of God passage. And in that passage, Paul is deadly serious about the battle that the Christian is in every day against our spiritual enemies. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, and then Paul says, and put on all the armor of God. Because it's a battle. Uh, Similarly, uh, we're called to strive towards maturity in our Christian faith, to think hard about sin and about temptation, about where we're getting pulled towards at times in our habits in our desires, in our lives. The Apostle Paul also calls us towards spiritual maturity so that we might better resist the devil in Christ's power. Genesis, or sorry, Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says, Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so Paul is saying there, Use your mind to think hard about temptation, to see it hopefully for what it is, and as you're doing this more and more, you're transformed by the renewing of your mind, then you'll grow in your understanding of God's way. The path will become clearer. The decision will become clearer between the way of the Lord and the way to death. So part of that conforming of our minds to God's way is being aware of the devil's strategies. Satan's first tactic in Genesis chapter 3 is to question if God has spoken clearly enough. Did God actually say? Did God actually say that little phrase has ruined so many lives? Did God actually say? 
the devil wants us to question the reliability and the clarity of the word of God. The devil wants us to forget what God has said. And when we do, we are in danger of falling into sin. Brothers and sisters, God has set for us a firm foundation. That is his word. And we need to believe his word for how we should, what we should believe and how we should live in regards to our relationship with God and in regards to our relationship with one another. God has spoken clearly. And not only that, he has given us of his spirit so that we might understand his word in a way that would, would make it possible to live for him, to know his will, to strive after holiness in this life with confidence. But Satan works tirelessly to cause us to doubt the word of God. That little phrase can creep into your mind maybe every day, maybe not with those exact terms, but essentially that is what we think whenever we're being tempted. Did God actually say that's the devil's scheme against Christ himself when he was out in the wilderness, even using the Bible um, in a manipulative way, tempting Jesus tempting Jesus to believe incorrectly about what God has said in his word. But of course, Jesus didn't fall for it. He remembered what God had actually said. There's a great documentary that illustrates how words can be twisted and confusion can enter into even the simplest of instructions. And the documentary is called The Art of the Steel. It's produced several years ago. It's about an art collector named Dr. Albert Barnes who lived in the suburbs of Philadelphia from 1872 to 1951. And the documentary follows first the life of Dr. Albert Barnes who was sort of a wealthy inventor who got really into collecting art. And he would send people to Europe to purchase modern art that he loved so much and uh, would send them there with, with actually large sums of money for the time. And in this art collecting, he amassed such an art collection that it is greater than the collection in the Louvre in Paris. So Dr. Albert Barnes's art collection, literally, in, in, especially in modern art, is larger than that of the Louvre. He owned more than 900 paintings from Van Gogh and Picasso and many of the great modern artists and his collection is now valued at more than $25 billion. All this art that he collected because he loved art and wanted to display it in a certain way in his foundation in a suburb of Philadelphia, in Marion, Pennsylvania. So during his life, he was derided by the art-collecting community of Philadelphia. They, they thought these pieces were insignificant, and so they would, they would mock him and question his taste in art. And he knew, though, that it was valuable and he would, it was going to eventually be recognized as valuable, and certainly it is today, $25 billion of value. And so while he was writing his will, he knew this is going to be extremely valuable someday. Some, some people are going to want to get their hands on this. And so he found the best lawyers that he could hire to create a will that would never permit the cultural elites of Philadelphia from getting their hands on, on his art collection. He knew that they would want it once it was truly valuable. So he found the best lawyers he could find, 
And there were some main rules in that will. He said no item in this collection will ever be sold. No item in his collection will ever be loaned. It will never leave the building that he purpose-built, constructed for housing this art. And so, unfortunately, Dr. Albert Barnes died in 1951. And many years later, on May 19, 2012, the entire collection was moved to a newly designed building in downtown Philadelphia that would be under the authority of essentially political bureaucrats. And so even though that will seemed airtight, seemed so clear, what happened not all that long after Albert Barnes passed away was the exact opposite of what he intended in his will. The collection is basically controlled now by bureaucrats and politicians. The documentary follows that process of carving up his will. In one sentence, it could be interpreted in a certain way, and then if that interpretation of this sentence is in a certain way, then this other sentence over here could be misinterpreted in a different kind of way, and then all of a sudden, the, the will means nothing. And, and certainly, it's been trampled upon in the uh, metaphorical sense. And so, if that happens in such a short time, in such a clear document as with the Barnes Foundation. It happens also every day in our lives as we think about the Word of God. Did God actually say that he won't hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name? But what if I stub my toe? Or what if I'm having a bad day? Did God actually say that we shouldn't put our faith in political leaders Yeah, but it's election season, and so it's okay to get really wrapped up in in that, especially this time of year. Trust not in princes. Trust in the Lord your God. Did God actually say that Jesus is the only way to the Father? Oh boy, there's a lot of really smart people, people a lot smarter than me, who, who wonder if God actually said Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way into salvation. It's Satan's first tactic to tempt us to forget what God has said. To question if God has spoken clearly. Did God actually say and to manipulate, to twist? The second temptation is similar. Satan's second tactic is to exaggerate the strictness of God's law. Did God say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And then Eve also gets confused saying, and we're not allowed to touch it either, which, which God never commanded in earlier in Genesis chapter 2. And so Satan wants to make God's law sound oppressive and burdensome. God's command for Adam and Eve did limit them in a way. That's what a command does. But they had the pick of any tree in the garden except for that one. And so the devil wants to convince Adam and Eve that any law at all is too restrictive for them. The devil wants to exaggerate the restrictiveness of the word of God. For an example of this happening in another Bible story, we can look to Jesus' parable of the prodigal son. You would likely remember the storyline of the parable of the prodigal son, one of the most popular stories in the whole Bible, where a young son, the younger of the sons, foolishly, sinfully offends his family, takes his inheritance, goes and squanders it, 
betrays his family, betrays his father, and, and comes back, receives grace from the father, and is welcomed back with, with a festival, with a party. And the story ends with a conversation between the father and the older brother. So Jesus taught in Luke 15 that as the party is beginning for the younger son who's come back, here's the conversation between the father and the older brother. And again, remember Satan's tactic of exaggerating the strictness of God's law. The older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Okay, it's got to be an exaggeration there. Yet you never gave me even a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You were restrictive towards me. You were oppressive towards me and my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf calf for him. Now listen to the father's response. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. You could eat from any of the trees in the garden except for that one. The father says, everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So again, brothers and sisters, in God's law, he gives some restrictions. He does. But a life with God will not be oppressive. A life with God will not be burdensome. With God, you'll have everything you need. If you are in Christ, you will have everything you need every day to live for God. Just like Adam and Eve had all the food they could need in the garden. There's no good reason to disobey God. Because he will provide for all your needs. And you can trust him. So this temptation to paint the law of God as more restrictive than it actually is can be seen in many ways today. For example, we could think about music. I love music. I like popular music and Christian music. I love church music. And so we could uh, think about the principle of singing sacred music during worship. And that would be a good limitation. Uh, The book of Colossians says, sing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another encouraging each other and so that would be a prescription for how a worship service could go singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs together to sing sacred music when we gather together as a church and so some people would say oh so you think christian music is the only music we're allowed to listen to no that would be an exaggeration of the strictness of a good principle from god's word they would say yeah but in church we should only sing songs that are meant to be used in worship and so therefore if i'm driving down the road i'm not allowed to listen to uh, the beatles or some other band that i like to listen to there's actually a lot of confusion about this matter in my own lifetime when i was um, a, a young man when i was a child sort of these only christian music families became kind of a, a big thing and so again that's a confusion about the restrictiveness of the word of God, about the principles that God teaches in his word. Now, we should be careful about the messages that are coming to us in our music, but, but one truth, we should sing sacred music in church, does not have to automatically apply to, oh, you've sinned if you've listened to a secular band for a little while. Similarly, we can think of taking care of our physical bodies. 
that there would be the call of God's word to steward our physical bodies well, to, to pay attention to our physical health and what we're eating and if we're active and exercising. These are good principles. And so because that good principle applies, somebody would say, oh, so you're saying I can never have a bowl of ice cream. No, that would be exaggerating the strictness of a good principle from God's word. And there is so much confusion about this. It requires wisdom. It requires knowledge of what God's word actually says if we're going to follow in a way that is pleasing to God and also life-giving for us. But it's not just ethical matters. The devil's scheme also applies to theological issues too. For example, it is a core doctrine of the Christian faith that Christ Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead. It is an absolutely essential core doctrine that we believe that Christ has ascended to heaven and will return in the same way that he has left in glory to judge the nations. And so that core doctrine of the faith is one that every Christian must hold to. But then what some uh, people, some churches, some ministers unfortunately do is they take another step further and they say, my interpretation of exactly how that's going to happen is an essential core doctrine of the Christian faith. And so they would say things like, if you don't believe in the rapture, well, then you must not believe any of the Bible. If you don't believe in uh, something called postmillennialism, which is something that's getting, the world is getting better and better as Christ returns, his enemies are being put under his foot, footstool. If you don't believe in that precise theology, well, then you must not believe any of the Bible at all. You can see there it's one of Satan's tactics to inflate the, uh, the, the, the strictness, to exaggerate the strictness of God's word. So Eve eventually, she gave the correct response initially. She understood, no, God said we can't eat from that tree. But the seed was planted in her mind that wondered if maybe God is holding us back from something. Maybe God's word is oppressive. Maybe God's command actually isn't good for me. That was the seed that the serpent wanted to plant in her mind, and he did so successfully. And so thirdly, finally, Satan's third tactic to confuse humanity about the consequences of sin. And it begins with an outright lie. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of of this fruit, your eyes will be opened, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, isn't this so interesting that Satan exaggerates the strictness of the law, but diminishes the consequences of disobeying the law? What, what an interesting paradox or irony that you have in, in Satan's tactic there. He wants to exaggerate how strict the law is, and kind of convince Adam and Eve, but if you go a little bit past one of these borders, well, then it actually won't be that bad for you. (laughs) So the tempter refutes the negative consequences of sin, and he says the outcome of disobeying God is going to be good for you. The implication here is that the outcome of obeying God is bad. But brothers and sisters, the outcome of obeying God will always be good. Just want to repeat that because it's so clear and so central to how we should be understanding this passage. The outcome of obeying God will always be good. 
always. Read your Bible every day, and you will grow in your knowledge and love for God. Develop a prayer life where you love the presence of God, and you will live with confidence in God. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will not feel guilty or shameful about the sin that you have committed because the price has been paid, you've been washed, you've been redeemed in Christ. And so you can have a peace of mind that comes from believing the word of God. Relentlessly teach your children the word of God and they will remember it. If we rely on our own intellect, in our, on our own decision-making, we won't be able to discern God's way and the right way will seem like a waste of time But if the Spirit is active in your life, you will see, brothers and sisters, you will see how good the path that God has set before you is and how dangerous and deadly the other path is. You'll see clearly um, which way God would want you to go. And so hopefully you could incorporate this in your prayer life, that you would remember the consequences of sin And remember the rewards of obedience. That before you would go into each day, you would maybe pray, God, help me, maybe in a time of temptation, to see where that temptation will lead me. It will lead to death and misery. Help me see that before, God. And help me see also, God, how following you, trusting you, serving you, living humbly before you would be a life of blessing today. The Christian who is filled with God's Spirit will understand the consequences of sin and the rewards of obedience to God. Adam and Eve, though, only thought about how good the fruit looked, how good it looks right now, forgetting God's promise that if they ate, the outcome would be terrible. So, brothers and sisters, pray that the Lord would open your eyes to see the goodness of following Jesus, the goodness of living with God, and the misery that comes from sin. What was so striking to me in my preparation for this message is how all three of these tactics are the exact tactics used in today's most debated ethical issue in our culture, the issue of homosexuality. I know I talked about this last week. It's not going to be every week that we talk about this matter, but it is the most debated ethical issue in the Christian Reformed Church today and in the broader culture. And these three tactics almost verbatim, are the three tactics used to argue in favor of what is called the affirming position that would applaud same-sex activity. Tactic number one, the Bible isn't clear. Did God really say that that activity was so bad? Did the Bible really address this matter in the way that we experience it today? Brothers and sisters, the answer is yes. The Bible does address that that matter very clearly in not just six particular passages, but all throughout. Tactic number two, the traditional biblical teaching on human sexuality is repressive. It's, It's too strict. We need to open things up. You don't want those people in your churches, do you? No, we do, brothers and sisters. So if this is a struggle that you would have of same sex desires, we would welcome you into our church. We would want you here among us to receive God's word 
so that we would love you, live life alongside you, care for you. But tactic number two is so clearly seen that the traditional teaching on biblical sexuality, they, uh, our uh, theological opponents would say, yeah, that's just ba- built on hate and repression and oppressiveness. No, it's, it's love for our neighbors that we would hold to that position. Tactic number three, the consequences, they would say, of holding to the biblical teaching would be bad. Young people will leave churches, but if we change, young people will come to our churches. People who believe that such activity would be a good thing, they would want to come to our church if we just changed that little theological um, position. You can see all three are the tactics used almost verbatim in the affirming position. And they're the tactics of the devil. But brothers and sisters, God's word is clear. God's word is good. And when we follow God's word, we will live with blessing. Isn't it a coincidence that the teaching about marriage comes right before Genesis chapter 3? It immediately proceeds where Adam and Eve are tempted away from God's will. It is, it is not a coincidence that that is the case because it's an area of, of great temptation even still in our world today. But if we want to glorify God, we must trust his word. The consequences might not be popular or the approval of the world, but the outcome of believing God's word will be a fruitful, confident Christ-like life. And that's the promise for every person. Seeing that the tempter's strategy is to attack the word of God, our defense is believing and remembering the word of God. Our defense, of course, spiritually speaking, is Christ who keeps us, who holds us, even when the tempter would prevail, as we sang earlier, he will hold us fast, And so in a spiritual sense, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ. But in the daily practical sense, it is good for us to be aware of the devil's schemes. Christ is the one who resisted the devil and overcame him by his obedience to the Father's will. And so we follow after Christ in his power. He not only accomplished our salvation, but gives us strength today to fight the devil, to live for God, And we close with a command and a great promise from James chapter 4. And I pray that this prepares you to trust in Christ and to live for God, resisting temptation. James 4, verses 7 and 8. Brothers and sisters, submit yourselves then to God. Isn't that what Adam and Eve at their core failed to do? Submit yourself to God. Submit your will to God. Trust God's word. Resist the devil. What a promise here. And he will flee from you. Come near to God. And he will come near to you in a time of temptation. Amen. Let's pray.